I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Well, 2020 was quite a year, wasn't it? Healthcare Solutions Podcast went noticeably silent last year. We didn't record a single podcast. But 2021 is here, and we're back in the podcast business. So welcome to Season 2 of Healthcare Solutions. We'll hear a couple of sequels from guests like Carl Schusler and Vinay Patel, and we'll have new guests like Dr. Keith Smith and Dr. Kristen Dickerson. We'll even hear from award-winning investigative journalist Marshall Allen, who will inspire you to never pay the first bill. So thank you for rejoining our audience, and remember, together, we can hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Today's guest is the award-winning investigative journalist Marshall Allen with ProPublica. He's written some of the most thought-provoking articles on how the healthcare system needs to be improved. And now he's written a new book called Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Marshall has such a servant's heart for the underdog and the healthcare system. By the way, that's all of us. And his book is a guide for all Americans who interact with the healthcare system in any way. We could all benefit from a user's manual for how to advocate for great health care without the bankrupting costs associated with it. So, enjoy this discussion with Marshall Allen of ProPublica, but don't worry about taking notes. Just go to your favorite bookseller and place a pre-order for his new book, which will be released in August. So, uh, welcome to Healthcare Solutions, Marshall Allen. This is such a pleasure. So, I, I told... Um, uh, my prior guest, who was Dr. Keith Smith, that he's one of my, you know, um, healthcare icons that I had butterflies in my stomach when I was interviewing him. But uh, there are a little more butterflies right now, uh, because I just think you are one of the most, um, you know, important people in our healthcare uh, system right now, because we just, we need the things that you're finding out. So Marshall, I'm not going to read your bio like everybody else does. That's just, fine. I'm just going to tell you that of all the guests I've had on Healthcare Solutions, you're the only one who has your own Wikipedia page. Wow. <laughs> so, you know. They, you know, they should all have their own Wikipedia pages, too, I think. I mean, if you I don't have think that's quite. Wikipedia page, you yeah. need no introduction. Um, but, but I will say that the first time I heard of you, was when my buddy, Carl Schusler, fellow Health Rosetta advisor and the founder of Mitigate Partners, he told me you had written a story about Marilyn Bartlett. She's one of my favorite people on the planet. And you know that story quickly got picked up by NPR and just went worldwide. And then you know it wasn't that much later, she was named in Fortune Magazine as one of the 50 most you know, greatest leaders in the whole world. Right. I would love to hear the insider's story about how you got that uh, going. Well, Carl is the one who told me about Marilyn. Um, You know, and so I, you know, I talked to lots of people 
um, who are on the front lines. Um, and you know, my, my mission at ProPublica is to identify stories where the public is being harmed in some way, whether it's financial or physical harm or corruption or abuses of power by institutions, individuals, the government. That's our mission at ProPublica, to expose these kinds of stories and hopefully write stories that will also point to solutions to bring about change. I mean, if you look at our mission statement, we say we want to use the moral force of investigative journalism to bring about change. Um, so I'm, I really, as an investigative reporter, I like to find my stories from the ground up, you know, so I'm always looking to talk to people on the front lines, whether that's an employer or Carl is a broker kind of consultant. Um, you're also in that position, but I talk to lots of doctors. I love to talk to patients um, and listen to their experience navigating the system, having them, the insiders really tip me off to the best stories. Um, and that's, and that's really how the best, the best stories come about because you want, sometimes I'll have an idea or my editor will have an idea, but it's just something I dream up in my head. I don't really know what's happening out there in the world. I'm not an expert in healthcare the way you are, the way Carl is, or the way Marilyn is. Um, I just talk to these folks, learn from them, and then communicate it in a way that an audience will hopefully um, understand and get, it'll get traction. So I was, I don't remember how I met Carl, um, but um, I got connected with Carl. It might've been on LinkedIn. It might've been through um, other people we knew mutually, but Carl, Carl and I were having a conversation and, I, and I, in any conversation, um, I'm, a, I'm a people person. So I love to talk to people. I'm always, I'm always interested. What should I investigate? You know, what should I do a story about? And it was Carl that told me about Marilyn um, and about how she had really turned things around there in Montana. And at first I thought, okay, this is a great story, but a lot of times, um, you know, you, you do the research um, and at ProPublica, we take the time to really do the research. I mean, we dig into every bit of the fine print to make sure that what we're reporting is really accurate and really true. And I have an old editor um, who liked to say um, that a lot of great stories are ruined by the facts, you know, because you dig in, you interview everybody, you talk to them about what the story is, and you find out that it's not quite what you thought it was, or it's not quite what your insider told you it was. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, though, uh, you know, the facts all checked out with Marilyn. Um, she's obviously one of a kind, um, and she's a really dynamic leader who had um, come in with this idea, you know. So, another, again, like in Montana, I, I, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to give credit to someone who doesn't deserve it either, or just write. It's really easy in the media to write kind of a heroic story you know, where you, you hold up one person who did something when really it was a whole team of people who did it, or maybe it wasn't even their idea, you know, it just creates this mythology. But in Marilyn's case, what's really interesting, of course, there was a team that helped her do it. Um, but I, I even had her send me the presentation she did when she interviewed for that job. And I talked to the people who were on the panel interviewing her for that job. She came in with the plan that she ended up implementing to turn that plan around. And, that, and so it, it really is, um, of course, there were a lot of other people that helped and a lot of other people were involved in that, but it was, it was Marilyn's vision. It was a really, um, uh, her dynamic leadership and her drive to keep asking questions about why was this plan not performing well and what could she do about it? And the things that she focused on uh, for people who aren't familiar with the story are reference-based pricing and 
really digging into the PBM contracts and, and turning those around to eliminate the spread pricing and the, really the, you know, the, the theft of their rebates um, through the PBM. Um, she had to overcome a lot of obstacles. Uh, she, she stepped on some toes while she did it, but you know, change isn't easy. And, and her story illustrates that too. Um, it's not a popular thing to go in and ask questions that are reasonable, smart questions, but a lot of people are making money doing it their traditional way. And so if someone's gonna come in and disrupt, you're gonna save the health plan, you're gonna save the taxpayers money, you're gonna save the employees money, but you're, you know, someone's gonna be losing that money. Somebody's been feeding on that income and on that revenue, right? Yeah. Um, and so Mar Marilyn really is uh, quite, um, quite uh, a remarkable leader in that way. And she's even gone on to do other things that are also um, remarkable. So it was really fun to tell that story because I could tell it like a solution story. Yeah. You know, where I highlight the things that she did to bring about the change and really rescue this um, this failing health plan that was going bankrupt uh, for the 30,000 employees there in Montana. Um, so, but I could do it in a way that shows the solution instead of a lot of times with investigative reporting, we highlight the problems, but we aren't able to point to the solutions. And that could be sometimes a little bit frustrating, you know, because you you hope that someone will read your story about some problem and do something about it. Well, here I was writing a story about somebody who addressed a problem by doing something about it. And really um, her story, which I include um, in my book, it really is like a blueprint for what employers could do um, if they were to push back. And they don't have to do it exactly the same way. You know, none of this is like, oh, you have to do reference-based pricing, um, but at least know what you're paying, at least get your data and take a close look at it. Um, at least check to make sure there aren't errors um, in the in the claims, or make sure that you're not overpaying for a procedure. I mean, she found you know that one hospital had billed like a hundred thousand um, dollars. That was like the negotiated rate that they wanted for a knee replacement. And another hospital, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like twenty five thousand dollars or something, an extreme chasm, you know. Yeah. A lot of people don't even realize this variation exists. So um, that's how that story came about. And um, I continue to talk to Marilyn now. You know, I've included her in my book. Um, and, and now when I talk to Marilyn, I'm like, hey, what, what should I write about, you know? Um, so I think that's always a part of every conversation I have with people on the front lines. You know, too bad that um, the lady that you wrote about that was the employee at, uh, or is the employee at Dignity Health who had the premature baby. Yeah. And that story really touched me because I myself had a premature baby um, and I could, I could totally relate to that. And I remember when I read that story, I kind of went out on my social media channels and shared it. And I, I used the, the term civil disobedience you know, thinking to just to describe how we all sort of need to stand up to the egregious bills and charge master pricing that, you know, could easily bankrupt uh, folks and the and hold the predatory billers accountable. Right. So I'll never forget when my little one was in his incubator, you know, I called it his little greenhouse and yeah. sitting there um, taking care of him and watching him. And this lady came in I could tell she was from some sort of like maintenance department or something like that. She had like cargo pants on and tools hanging from her tool belt. 
And the, the nurse that was um, the charge nurse for that shift, they were talking and I was eavesdropping. <laughs> um, and uh, she pointed to this black box on the, on the wall. It was about, you know, this big by this big and about that thick. And it was literally, it was mounted on the wall and plugged into an electrical socket. It was like a big box uh, power strip, you know, that you plug mm -hmm. things into. And she points to it and she says, hey, do you want one of those to take home to the nurse? And the nurse says, I don't think I have a use for that, why? And the lady said, because they're all gonna get thrown away tonight. And that got my antennas up, right? right. And, Why and is I this? Turned, yeah. Yeah, I turned around and I looked at them because they were just really right over my shoulder. And I said, y'all are going to throw all those things away? She says, we don't have uh, anything else we can do with them because a consultant came in and said that they were a hazard, um, that they could fall down and injure a patient. So they're all getting taken out of every patient room in this hospital. This is wow. a huge a huge hospital atrium in Charlotte, you know, the name. Wow. Yep. And they're all getting thrown in the dumpster. And I thought to myself, my goodness, if they just simply had the good sense that God gave a rock to find another use for those things or put them on eBay and sell them right. and or, or anything. So um, fast forward to when my baby is ready to get discharged after being six weeks in the NICU. Wow. We have a quarter million dollar bill, um, you know, wow. that, that we're uh, getting our eyes on. Now, my husband's um, health plan, I'm sure, was raked over the coals for that. Not, not that they are the fiduciaries that they should be. But I just thought to myself, you know, a little civil disobedience uh, would go a long way if every American, and uh, <laughs> I, I hope every American buys your book, um, you know, Amazon says that it is a guerrilla guide for every American, you know, to uh, tackle the healthcare system. So hey, kudos for getting the widest audience you probably could get. Well, um, that, that is, that is the goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the goal. And I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, like an insurrectionist or something like that. But um, what I do believe strongly in is that People should not take advantage of other people. People should not exploit other people's sickness for profit. And that is really the mainstream way our healthcare industry makes money is by hiding the prices, hiding the agreements, um, tricking people into paying more, tricking employers into paying more. I think it's deceptive. And we, don't, we shouldn't accept that from one another or from anybody. And yet that has become almost like the standard operating procedure in American healthcare. And, and I've been continually astonished. Uh, I started covering healthcare as a journalist in 2006 when I was in Las Vegas at the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. I have been continually astonished to see the deception and the unfair practices that are standardized and normalized in American healthcare and how we would never expect these things to be this way because most people treat each other, we expect with a certain level of honesty and openness and decency, or even like um, you're pointing to throwing out those um, electrical strips. Um, you know, that's a huge waste issue. Um, they estimate that about 25% of all healthcare spending is wasted healthcare spending. And I spent a year for ProPublica just investigating all the ways our healthcare system wastes money. 
Imagine if we could just lop 25% off of our premiums, deductibles, and out-of-pocket costs right now. What That's a, really what's what represented package. in that waste. Yeah, what a real-life stimulus package that really would be. No doubt, no doubt. Take ex, you know, extra spending to make it happen. It would just be using found money um, to save us. The problem is it would be lost money for the industry. And that's where this is not, um, this isn't, this is a situation where there have to be winners and losers, you know, because right now the employers and the employees of the United States are the losers because we're subsidizing the bloat and the waste that makes up the salaries, um, the benefits, the bonuses for all the people within the healthcare industry. And if we say we're not going to pay that anymore, then they're not going to have that money anymore. And I think, I think frankly, that's fair. Um, you know, people might need to uh, find other jobs or find more efficient ways of doing things. The industry needs to be disrupted in the same way that other industries have been disrupted. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking as a journalist. Um, our industry has been completely upended uh, by the internet and changes in the advertising models. And it's forced a lot of people to find other things to do. Um, that's how progress sometimes works. And, and unfortunately, if they were treating people fairly, I wouldn't have this issue. It's, it's the deception and the unfair practices that are bankrupting people that I really um, stand against. I'm, I am so happy that you've got that power of the pen to, you know, to bring these things to light. It, the, these types of things need to bubble up and become part of the vernacular of healthcare. I, I'm curious how you see that in your work on a day-to-day. -day. Do you see that often that em employers are being taken advantage of? Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm doing these stories about people who have problems. Is my sample just biased because, um, you know, of what I see? I, you know, I do see it, but what I wish I saw more of is the employer having the spine to stand up and say enough is enough. I, I see more of that in just plain individuals. And, and when it's an employee looking to that employer to, you know, to have those principles, they're stuck. They're stuck in a bad situation. But I see more individuals who are in charge of their own healthcare buying decisions they're the ones who are standing up and saying, you know what, I don't need this anymore. I've got other options that I can pursue. So right. and, uh, I see, and I've done it myself. I, I see um, an exit uh, uh, from the insurance world into direct primary care and health sharing um, kinds of organizations. Uh, so I did that myself after paying over $150,000 in insurance premiums over the last 20 years. Um, finally, COVID was the final nail in that coffin and I decided we had had enough. Uh, we were gonna leave my husband on, on his sad uh, employer-sponsored plan, leave him you know, high and dry and we were vacating that plan and going with direct primary care and you know another option. And, Indeed, it saved us uh, as a family unit. It saved us seven hundred dollars a month uh, to make that change. Um, wow! But, but the found money, right? I, I love this found money. You know, reaching into your pocket, your winter coat, you know, and finding a hundred dollar bill. Um, when we left that insurance plan, we were paying a thousand dollars a month for family coverage, and. Um, uh, 
choosing a direct primary care doctor and a health share uh, to make up the difference, I could, I could immediately cover the DPC doctor's um, annual fee with almost, you know, just a little over one month's worth of the savings wow. we got. Um, so one, one month's worth of savings from insurance premiums buys us a whole year of a DPC doctor. And, you know, you were talking about um, earlier before we started, we were talking about unnecessary care. Right. Listen to this. So the other night, um, my next door neighbors call and say, hey, can your oldest come over and watch our kids for just a couple hours uh, until we can wrap things up and come home? And I said, oh, totally fine. He'll walk over and I'll pick him up at eight. Well, this was a Tuesday night. I pick him up and he's limping. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> so I was like, oh, no, what did these children do to you? Um, but he, they had, um, were playing cops and robbers out in the front yard, and he stepped in a hole. And uh, I apologize to my audience if I've told this story before. It's just a really good one. <laughs> but I, I called um, our DPC doctor at, at, you know, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night, and um I hand the phone to my son and he even is the one who's triaging his own care with our doctor. <laughs> and they hand me the phone back and, and Dr. Kramer says, I've, I've texted you a link to an ankle brace. It does not appear broken. Don't worry. You know, if it hadn't been for that access to care, right. I promise you the nervous Nelly that I am with my children I mean, I could be missing part of my leg and I probably wouldn't go to the doctor for myself. But if it's my kids, I, I rush them to urgent care. Yeah. And, and that visit, being a cash pay patient now, that visit would have been a few hundred dollars. So, you know, just taking matters into your own hands and um, being a smarter consumer uh, and, and, of course, having a great doctor on call 24-7 that you can get solid, you know, advice from to keep you from going and seeking unnecessary care. That's a, that's a real tool in your tool belt. That you that's need. a great example. I mean, I, so I included a chapter in the book on how to avoid unnecessary care and kind of the key questions that you should ask um, whenever you're pursuing any type of healthcare, even your doctor's recommending that you do a scan or that you take a medication or that they do a procedure. Um, and I think about, I often will have friends of mine refer their friends to me to help find a doctor, you know? Yeah. And so a few years ago, um, I, I got connected to a friend of a friend, this guy, Jeff, he's 43 years old, uh, martial artist, very active fit guy, but he was having this pain, you know, in his neck and um, thinking he needed a spinal surgery. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about healthcare knows spinal surgery is not always the solution. Often it's not the solution um, if you're having back problems. Um, anyway, I helped him, but I also tried to talk through it with him a little bit like, you know, surgery might not be your best option. I'm not saying anything that it is or isn't. Uh, I'm not a doctor and making a medical decision, but try to encourage him to think through other options. I saw him a few months later at a party our mutual friend had, and I was talking to him about it. I said, I was like, whatever happened with that doctor thing? He said he went to one doctor, who a surgeon, who told him he was in dire need of an immediate surgery, that he needed to even stop playing golf, that he was at risk of injury and paralysis. He talked to another doctor who said he was definitely a candidate for surgery, but he was young and he sort of thought, I don't know if I should be doing this right now. And he just changed his diet. He went on one of these keto diets and um, 
you know, stopped doing the kind of more aggressive uh, martial arts sparring he had been doing and went to physical therapy for about eight sessions. And then he continued doing those exercises at home and he felt great. The pain went away. He didn't have any operation. And when I saw him at the party, he just kind of shook his head thinking about how close he had come to having this operation. And you think about the cost of that operation, which was not necessary. And you think about the potential for complications or for possible harm. I mean, when they're cutting into your, into your body, there's no such thing as a routine operation. And so um, it's just an example of, you know, the money and the pain, literal pain that you save sometimes by um, waiting and trying some other approaches. And like what my thing, the most important question I think anybody can ever ask is, and this is when you're in your doctor's office and they're telling you they need to do something, we're assuming it's not an emergency, right? And you're not gushing blood or something, but if it's an elective thing, you know, you ask like, what's the worst thing that can happen to me if we wait? If we don't do anything right now, what's the greatest harm I could suffer um, because it kind of forces the, the conversation to be flipped. You know, usually they're saying you need to do this because I want them to ask, I want them to tell me, what if I don't do it? What's going to happen? What if we, what if I come back in three months or six months and we check it out then? So you want me to go on this medication? What if I don't go on the medication? Right. Will I be harmed by not taking it? Like, let's, let's think about it the other way. And a lot of times that kind of puts that doctor in that perspective of it, it kind of forces them to go, well, you know, let's think through the risk of treatment versus the risk of not treatment. You know, um, I just think that's a valuable question people should ask. That, you know, that reminds me of um, the fact that employees who have this ultimately a a blank check, I mean, it's a card, so let's call it an unlimited credit card in their wallet that gives them access to the expanse of the healthcare system. No employer would anymore give them an actual credit card tied to the company bank account for any other purpose (laughs) without lots of rules and expectations and, you know, a a whole manual around how you are and are not to use this credit card. But when it comes to the ID card in their wallet, they, they basically say nothing except for stay in network. And many times it's the in-network charges that are more egregious than the out-of-network. Very true. So I, um, I've been trying to, so um, you're, we're, we're touching on all these things. Um, I know I am trying to promote my book, but I mean, I, and, and just because I've meant to before this point, but I've meant to call out the actual title. So go ahead. Yeah. So the back. title of the book is never pay the first bill and other ways to fight the healthcare system and when. And it really is a how-to manual for workers and employers about step-by-step, chapter-by-chapter, how to push back and win. The focus here is on the winning because I think a lot of times we know that we're getting ripped off. We know we're being taken advantage of, but what do you do about it? Stay tuned next time for more of our conversation. Thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag let's fix healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.com.
www.thepurpose.work.